John chapter 7, verses 1 to 31. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where the, this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In uh, Augustine's Confessions, St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, the, the uh, bishop of northern Africa, who has influenced uh, particularly the Western Church, and he's given us the name of the oldest city in Florida as well, he wrote uh, a famous book called the Confessions. And in the Confessions, he has this fascinating and very troubling reflection about time. About time. And he says this, if you don't ask me to define what time is, I know what it is. But if you ask me to define time, I can't tell you what it is. 
And then he says, we divide time into past, present, and future. And then he says, well, the past doesn't really exist, does it? Because it's gone. So we can't say that that time exists. It doesn't exist. Well, and the future doesn't exist either, does it? And the present, what is the present, but just that, that transition from the past that doesn't exist into the future that doesn't exist. Now, this is all very, very challenging sort of thinking, but it's hard to know how to respond to that. We, we may not be able to, and I personally have not read a good definition of time. But at the same time, we humans know all about time, don't we? We're very good at seeing it pass. We're very good at measuring it. Sometimes we're good at wasting it. Sometimes we're good at spending it. And we all feel like we don't have enough of it. Even though we don't know what this is that we're talking about and experiencing, and we maybe can't define it, but we sense it. We live in this atmosphere of time. We also talk about timing. And timing is different than time. Timing is not just the, the flow of whatever this is. It's the, a certain moment. That's the, the right moment for doing something. And we find in the Gospel of John that there is a great focus on these two things. There is a focus on time and there is a focus on timing. And in this text that we have today, it begins with a, 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 a focus on time, a comment about time, and then it ends with a focus on time as well. So this passage is bracketed, bookended, with this question of time and the right time for things. Now, it says here, as we begin the text, it says uh, a typical transition statement of John, after this, or after these things, after what? Well, after what we saw happen last week. What did we see happen last week? We saw that Jesus was teaching in Galilee, people were thrilled, all these disciples, and then his teaching got too hard for them. It offended them. They didn't like it anymore. And so many of these so-called disciples turned away from following Jesus. And then he turned to the disciples and he said, what? Do you want to leave too? And then Peter's uh, brilliant answer, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And now it says, after this, after these things, he went about in Galilee. Now, you remember that Galilee's in the north, Judea is in the south, and Samaria is in the middle. So the, the people of Israel divided between the north in Galilee, the south in Judea. And it says he was going about in Galilee, verse 1, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. He had been in Judea about six months previous, and he had performed a miracle. He's going to refer to that miracle once again, a sign. He had healed a man on what day? The Sabbath day, and he told the man to pick up his mat and walk. And so the man was uh, liable to get into trouble for walking and carrying his mat, and he blamed it on Jesus. He said, he's the one who told me to do this, and so they were persecuting Jesus. And so it says here that in Galilee, people were abandoning him. In Judea, it was worse. They were wanting to kill him. But the Feast of Booths was coming up. The Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths was so named because it was actually, it was one of the more, according to at least one ancient um, Jewish historian, it was a very festive time. It was something like camping because uh, people lived in huts or booths because they were remembering 
the 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert wandering around and living in portable dwellings. And so it was a festive time when they would gather in Jerusalem, one of the three times a year, they would gather in Jerusalem and they would make these, these makeshift tents either from afar, if they'd come into the town, or even the people who lived there would do that. And the brothers, the brothers had seen Jesus' signs that he was doing and they saw an opportunity. If you're going to make it big time, you should make your splash in Jerusalem during one of the three feasts. Okay, it didn't go so well the last time at the feast, but now there's another opportunity to go to the feast and make a big splash. And this is their argument. Uh, they, They tell him, the brothers, they say, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. And by the way, he, he must have been doing a, many more works. Actually, we know he was. Many more works than are recorded in John uh, that the brothers had seen. It says, Leave here and go to Judea that, that, that your disciples may also see the works you were doing. That is, the works here in Galilee. They may see them down in Judea. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the world. Now, we've seen that John plays around, the author John plays around with this word world. And there are different meanings for the word world. Here, world simply means everyone. Show yourself to everyone. Make a big splash. Go to where everyone is and do some miracles there. And everyone will be wowed and everybody will see what you can do. Now, why did the brothers do this? Verse 5 has a fascinating explanation for the brothers' tactics. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, wait a minute. His brothers had seen the signs, hadn't they? They, they, they knew that Jesus was capable of producing these signs, and they wanted other people to, to see these signs and believe something about Jesus. But the way they were going about it was all wrong. Why? Because they didn't really believe in him after all. And that's that why they were just using worldly marketing techniques in order to promote Big Brother so that he could be more famous and make a big splash. But that was because they were not believers at this point. They became believers later. We know that from Acts. But at this point, they weren't believers, and so they were acting like worldlings. And that's what Jesus says to them. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time... My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, what's his time and what's their time? Well, Jesus explains, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. This is quite a statement. He is saying to his own brothers, he's saying, you are part of the world. Now here Jesus is using this word world in the way that it usually appears in the Gospel of John. And what is that? Rebellious humanity that is arrayed in its plot against God. It's rebellious humanity. And so they say, show yourself to the world, meaning what? Everyone. And Jesus says, the ways of operating that you're recommending are part of the world, part of rebellious humanity. This is worldly operation. This is unbelieving operation. That's not how I operate. You have your time. 
according to the, the marketing techniques of the world, but that's not my time. My time has not yet come. And then he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. And it says then, verse 9, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, we're seeing a repeated story here. Do you remember back in chapter 2, Jesus' mother wanted to force Jesus into the limelight because the wine had run out at the party? And he go, she goes to him and says, my, uh, my son, they don't have any more wine. And he's a bit harsh with her and says, woman, what is there between you and me? My hour has not yet come. But then, for his own reasons, he goes ahead and he turns water into wine. So eventually he does what his mother had wanted him to do, but he does it on his terms for his reasons, not for hers on her terms. And that's what happens here. Because if you look at verse 10, it looks rather confusing, doesn't it? But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. He also went up, not publicly, but in private. So in verse 8, he says, I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. In verse 10, it says, after they went up, he went up as well, but not the way they wanted him to. So now we can understand what he meant, that his time had not yet fully come. He meant it wasn't time for him to go up to the feast. And this is interesting because he's, he's regulating even his smallest movements according to a time that is not the world's time. It's not the timing of the world. What's regulating Jesus' movements? It's the will of the Father. He submits even his smallest movements to the will of the Father. So his time and his timing are according to God's will, not according to worldly standards. So he goes up to the feast, and at the feast, it says in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. Why? Because six months ago, at a previous feast, he had caused quite a stir. And they're saying, where is he? Now, we've also seen this curious way that John uses this word, the Jews. And he uses the Jews in various ways. But we've noticed that basically everybody in the story is what? Is a Jew. And yet it will refer various times to the Jews. In this case, it refers to the Judean leaders, the religious leaders in Judea. Because then it talks about the crowds. What were the crowds? They were Jews as well. But it, call, it distinguishes them. So the Jews here are the Jewish leaders in Judea. And it says that the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, the common people. Some said, what? He's a good man. He's a good man. But others said, no, no, he's a deceiver. He's leading people astray. And then it says in verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, all of them were Jews, but for fear of what? The Jewish leaders, no one spoke openly about him. And then we get to verse 14. Jesus is there about the middle of the feast. It was a week-long feast. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Why did he do it then? Because that was the right time to do it. 
that was God's time for him to do it, the middle of the feast. Not when his brothers wanted him to. He went up early on, but he waited until the middle, and he went and he began teaching. And there was quite a, a surprise among, verse 15, among the Jews. So here are the Jewish leaders. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So these are the Jewish leaders. And what have the Jewish leaders done? They had studied. They had gone to all the right schools. They had been trained by the right rabbis. So they were the ones who knew Scripture and knew how to teach Scripture. They were the ones who knew how to quote all of the authorities. And by the way, that's, that was how generally the rabbis would teach, by quoting other authorities. And then Jesus came and he taught directly. He did not cite other authorities. He spoke as one with his own authority. And he was obviously an amazing teacher that had a a dominance of his topic, which was the scriptures. And they, they wondered, how does this man, who has not gone to any of our schools, who has not studied under any of us or any of our our prominent rabbis, how is he able to teach like this? And Jesus responded that he actually did have authoritative instruction. But it was better even than their schools. Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. But then he said there's a problem in understanding what he says, in understanding his teaching, and we have seen that all through here. And he says that there is a heart problem, not just an intellectual problem. There is a heart problem that we have when we hear Jesus' authoritative teaching, which comes from God. He says this in verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Do you know how it is to convince anyone of anything? Uh, You know, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. That's how humans are. We have heart commitments that are prior to our encounter of the facts. And if those facts don't align with our heart commitments, we often reject those facts. They don't fit into our, our comfortably constructed worldview. And that's what he's saying here. If your worldview is the view of the world, that is to say you are not aligned with God's view, God's will, then you won't get my teaching. You will reject my teaching. Why? Because it's above you. You can't understand it. It's, it's too ethereal. No, because your heart is not in the right place. There's a heart problem. And then he goes on to show them that their hearts weren't in the right place. Verse 18, he says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. Here he's referring to himself. And in him there is no falsehood. Why is there no falsehood in him? Because he has the authoritative teaching from God. His teaching is not not something he's making up. It's from God. And he's not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory of him who sent him. His true His teaching is true. There's no falsehood in him. And then he nails them with Moses. What was their boast? Their boast was Moses, the books of Moses, the law. And he says, has not Moses given you the law? And if he would have stopped there, they would have said, yes, indeed. 
He's given us the law. We understand the law like no one else. We obey the law like no one else. The law is our boast. The law is our pride. The law is our our stand, our firm foundation. And he says, Moses has given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Yes, you have the law. And that's the privilege of being a Jew. Having God's law written and and given through prophets so that they might, might have God's will explained to them. That is the inestimable privilege of being a Jew. For century after century, having God's law. And he said, yes, you have the law. But you don't keep the law. And then he goes on to demonstrate that they didn't keep the law. He says, why do you seek to kill me? Back in chapter 5, that's what they did. He healed a man on the Sabbath. And what did they want to do? They were so enraged. Not that he had disobeyed Moses, but that he had disobeyed their, their additions to Moses, their traditions. And they wanted to kill him. Do you remember what the Sixth Commandment says? You shall not murder. You shall not kill. And there they were, boasting in Moses and wanting to murder Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to look at them and say, how terrible is that? How blatant a violation of the law of God. And yet, Jesus' description is not only describing them, it's describing humanity. Because we all have the law of God. Either those who are Jews, the privilege of having God's written law, or as Paul argues in Romans 1 and 2, the, the law of God written on our hearts. Isn't that remarkable? That, that if you go anywhere in the world and ask people who have never had any sort of contact with the Bible, and you ask them, is it right to murder somebody else? Virtually no one will say yes. Almost everybody will say, no, that's terrible. Why is that? Because we have the law. And God has written that law on our hearts. The problem is not that we're ignorant, that we don't have the law. The problem is that we, like they, are not able to keep the law. And the, the irony, the tragedy, the glory of this interaction is this. They eventually, as you know, fulfilled their purposes, didn't they? We'll get to that at the end of the Gospel of John. They fulfilled their murderous purposes. They, they eventually were able to take Jesus' life unjustly and so demonstrate themselves to be violators of the law. And yet, and this is the the glorious irony, through his death, Jesus provided salvation for whom? For lawbreakers. Why? Because he took upon himself the penalty that the covenant, that the law demands for those who violate the law. So even though they murdered him in violation of the law, his death proves to be the salvation of all lawbreakers who trust in him because he, by his death, bore our sins in his body on the tree.
Now, the crowd heard him saying this, and we need to distinguish three groups here, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the crowd, many of whom were pilgrims from outside who were visiting Jerusalem, and the Jerusalemites, whom we'll see a little bit later. The crowd answered, you have a demon, basically telling him he's, he's paranoid. Who is seeking to kill you? See, the crowd was from outside. They didn't know what happened six months ago. So they thought he was being paranoid by talking about people trying to kill him. And they went on. Well, Jesus went on and says, I did one work. You want to know that people really are trying to kill me? Uh, remember what happened six months ago. I did one work. And all of you marvel. Verse 21. What was that one work? It was healing the man on the Sabbath. And then he says, Moses gave you circumcision. And circumcision was supposed to be a week after birth, eight days after birth. And uh, what if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath? What were they to do? Circumcise. And they debated this, and they decided that, that circumcision trumps Sabbath-keeping. And even though it's a work, they should do it because it's a healing sort of work. It is a, a purifying sort of work. And he says, Moses gave you circumcision. Actually, it's before Moses, the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Not just a part of it, but his whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What is he saying to them here? I can justify my actions on principles that you yourselves recognize. This is how you operate on a minor scale. And when I operate on this same principle on a major scale, what do you do? You condemn me and you want to kill me. Now, after that, there was conversation in verse 25. And here we meet the Jerusalemites. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, they knew the history from six months ago. Some of the people from Jerusalem said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? This is suspicious, isn't it? They wanted to kill him six months ago and here he shows up. He's in their territory. He's in the temple teaching authoritatively and they don't do anything. Maybe they figured out that he really is the Christ. But then they're not so sure. There was this idea, not accepted by everybody. They say in verse 27, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. There were different opinions uh, among the Jews uh, about where the Christ would come from. Uh, there were those who pointed to Bethlehem, and we find that uh, in, in another gospel. But here, there was another opinion that he will suddenly appear and we won't know anything about his prehistory. And that was one of the, the ideas. And then Jesus responded, probably, probably with, with great irony. There's a great deal of irony in the Gospel of John. And Jesus responded and says, you know me and you know where I come from. We maybe should read that like, you know me and you know where I come from? in an ironic sort of way, because they thought they knew, but we, the readers, know that they didn't really know. And Jesus knew that they didn't really know. So there may be some irony here. You know me, and you know where I come from. Okay, well, actually, 
Um, you don't know my ultimate origin. I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. You see, the problem is not so much whether you're confused about whether I'm from Galilee or Judea, whether I'm from Bethlehem or from Nazareth. That's not the big problem you have. You don't know the one who sent me. That's the problem, as we've already seen. That's why you're not accepting my teaching. I know him, Jesus said, verse 29, for I come from him and he sent me. And those are the final words of Jesus in this section. And then we have, once again, the divided responses. In verse 31, it says, Many of the people believed in him. And this was their reasoning. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so you would expect us, by this point, to be saying, Excellent! Wonderful! Jesus has many people believing in him. But we've read enough enough in the Gospel of John to know better, haven't we? Especially if their faith is based on what? Signs. Now, sign faith in the Gospel of John is better than no faith. But if you're just looking at the signs, you're not looking at that which they signify. You haven't really gotten to the truth yet. And so we're no longer too excited when we read that many of them believed in him because of the signs. And as we keep going in chapter 8, we'll understand that our caution was warranted because we've already seen many believe in him. And then something gets too difficult, something gets a little bit uh, too hard in its teaching. What do they do? They turn away. But that was the most positive or the more positive of the two reactions to Jesus in this instance. Verse 31, many believed in him. Verse 30 is more sinister. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And here is the other bookend. Here's the other bracket. At the beginning, his, his brothers say, go up to Jerusalem and show yourself. And he says, my time has not yet come. And here he says, no, or here it says that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And it seems these are two different words in Greek and two different words here in English, related obviously, First he says, my time has not yet come. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And it looks like there is a difference between these two statements, although they're very similar. When Jesus was referring to his time had not yet come, he was speaking of what we call what? Timing. And his whole life was according to God's timing. And he didn't go up to the feast because every moment of his life was according to God's timing. And he did things when God had him do things according to God's schedule. But when he refers to his hour, we understand something different. We understand a certain event, the culmination of his ministry, which was being lifted up on the cross. And we will find this hour was already mentioned to to his mother Mary. Why do you involve me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Mother, you are thrusting me towards the cross by getting me into the public limelight. 
But it says here that even though they wanted to arrest him with murderous intent, his hour, the hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion had not yet come, and so they could not yet lift a hand against him. Why not? Because it wasn't the hour. The hour had not yet come. Now, we also have our time, and we also have our hour, don't we? What is our hour? We're going to have an hour as well. And that's the hour when our hearts stop beating and our lungs stop breathing. When our brain waves stop their activity. All of us have an hour. And it's coming relatively soon. A matter of decades at most. Uh, we have our hour. And then we have our time. And what is our time? Our time is every moment between now and our hour. So we have our hour, our appointed hour, and in the meantime, what do we have? We have our time. And as we move into the new year, I can guarantee you, as all parents have told their children multiple times, that life's not fair. There will be an uneven distribution of almost everything. Some people have more money, and some people have less. Some people have more opportunities. Some people have fewer opportunities. Some people will have greater health, and some people will have more sickness. Some people will have great gains, and other people will have great losses, and it will not be evenly distributed. But there is one precious commodity that will be distributed infallibly, evenly. Every human being who lives the entire year of 2020 will get exactly the same allotment. And it will be this, 8,784 hours. And that's 24 more than we usually get. That's what we're going to get if we survive the year. 8,784 hours. We cannot trade them. We cannot sell them. We cannot buy more. Every human being will have exactly the same number. The question is only, what are we going to do with them? What are we going to do with them? And as we've already noted, we have a great capacity to waste them, and we have a great opportunity to spend them, or as we sometimes say in English, invest them in something that matters. Here's a, a possible motto for us in 2020. It comes from Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. There you have it. 8,784 hours. Let's use them well. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this allotment you give us of time before our hour comes. 
And we thank you that Jesus used all of his time, not according to worldly standards, but according to your will. And he also did not shrink from that hour when it came. We pray, O God, in the light of that hour that is coming for all of us, that we would use our time well. Our desire and our prayer is that we would be here a year from now and that we would have used our time for your glory, not for our indulgence, but for your glory and the greater extension of the kingdom of Christ. We pray, O God, that we would make the most of every opportunity, that our timing would be your timing, that our time would be according to your schedule, that even as Christ used his time for your glory, that we would use our time for your glory as well. And at the end of this year that's coming, that our lives would have contributed something to the greater glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.